Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, body positivity, and health at every size. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in weight-inclusive wellness. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food. Hey there, welcome to episode 105 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Jessamine Stanley, the amazing body positive yoga teacher and activist and author of the new book, Everybody Yoga. We talked about her book and how that came to be and how her yoga practice evolved over time and helped her recover from decades of dieting and body shame and how she's learned to accept her body and navigate body image issues in the present. It was a wonderful conversation. I'm so excited to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I want to point you to a couple of great resources for improving your relationship with food. The first is my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. This is like my quick start guide to intuitive eating and health at every size. So if you're looking for some really practical guidance and tips to launch your anti-diet journey, this is the place to go. You can get it by going to christyharrison.com strategies, or you can text the phone number 44222 with the word food psych, all one word, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, text the number 44222 with the word food psych to get your free guide on the go. The second resource I want to share is my intuitive eating online course, which is a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really demystify and troubleshoot some of the common areas where people tend to get stuck. I show you how to recognize the diet mentality and navigate it, push back against it, which people consistently say is the biggest thing that they're learning in the course is how the diet mentality hangs on in these subtle ways that they never would have recognized if it weren't for the course. So I'll teach you how to do that. I'll share my secrets to making food and exercise choices from a place of self-care rather than a place of self-control. And I'll also teach you how to navigate emotional eating and how to stop alternating between restricting and overeating. There's also a whole lot more. It's 13 weeks of amazing, rich content, and you also get access to our private Facebook group exclusively for course participants, so you really get a community to walk you through the course and be with you every step of the way. You can join by going to christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And finally, if you like the podcast and you want to help us reach more people who need to hear the Health at Every Size message, you can share this episode on iTunes. Just open up iTunes on your computer or the podcast app on your phone. And then in the podcast app, there's three little dots next to the episode at the bottom right of the screen. You click on that and click on share episode. And if you're listening on your computer, you can go to the button at the right-hand side of the screen. That's a little drop-down menu, and that will allow you to share or copy the link or send it out via email or whatever you want to do. So sharing is a great way to bring us up in the iTunes rankings because it tells iTunes like, 
hey, people like this podcast, they're sharing it with their friends and getting others to subscribe to the podcast as well. And that helps bring us up in the ratings where more people can find the health at every size message. And I did a recent survey. You might have heard me talk a couple of weeks ago about the survey on the podcast. And from that survey, I discovered that 25% of our listeners are coming from the iTunes charts or another like chart on on a podcast app, but primarily it's iTunes. So that says to me that we're getting a lot of people coming in because they see the podcast in the health rankings and the health podcast rankings, and that we can grow even further and get this message out to more people if we continue to be high in the rankings and come up even higher. So if you want to help us do that and get the message out to more people, share in iTunes. And I so appreciate everyone who's shared so far. All right, without any further ado, let's go talk to Jessamine Stanley. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So when I was a kid, we definitely were like working class and it wasn't a kind of situation where we always had like tons of food around. And I was taught to always clean my plate, to always make sure that you, you know, because we, we had to work for this food, you know what I mean? Like it's, you need to be respectful of that. And then on top of that, when we did have food, it was usually like a special occasion or a holiday. And especially like, I don't know if this is a cultural thing. I think it must be cultural and be just a part of like being Southern, but there's lots of food and you are expected to eat multiple plates of it. And because that combined with this feeling of like, we don't really always have a lot of food. So I need to make sure that I eat my food. That meant that I was like very, I developed a love affair with food and that love affair to be completely honest has never ended. But the issue was that I never learned how to eat, like how to just eat and stop when you're full and just like, just be okay with it. So I always felt this. Well, when I was very young, I didn't really feel that much about it. It was just kind of like, oh, this is how things are. And then my mom got really sick and she was sick for, I talk about this in my book, Everybody Yoga, but she was basically bedridden for a couple of years. And we were very much just living under the weight of that. And my brother and I would just sit around the house and eat. My dad worked all the time to support all of us. My mom was unable to really do anything. And my brother and I would just eat together. And it was a way of comforting each other and comforting ourselves and something to do. And we both gained a lot of weight during that time period. And I mean, I think that it's kind of, you know, the reason for everything is irrelevant. Ultimately, it just becomes like, so where do I go from here? And if you take that situation and then add in the fact that I, again, never learned how to eat, then I spent like the entirety of my teens being obsessed with the way that I ate and like how I can lose, but specifically within the context of losing weight. And it was really bad when I was in college I was obsessed with, um, I would, I just wanted to be smaller. I didn't really care what it took to get there. So having bad eating patterns was irrelevant to me. All that mattered to me was that, is this something where I'm going to eventually lose weight? And so I would try, I would do Weight Watchers. I, I've done Weight Watchers a number of times in my life. And every time for me, it just made this space where I was not, I just did not have a good relationship with it was like, 
I'm either eating too little of it or too much of it, never at the right time, never taking my actual, what makes me feel good. I was never taking that into account. It was just like, oh, this seems like something I should be eating. Or maybe if I'm, you know, if I'm having a day where maybe the day before I drank a lot, because this was also during a time where I was doing a lot of drinking. If I drank a lot the day before, if I ate a lot the day before, then maybe I just won't eat the next day, especially if it's the day before weigh-in. It's all these like toxic habits, you know? And it's the kind of thing that you don't even really acknowledge as toxic until something happens to disrupt it. And something that has been really great for me is, I hate that it's so cliche, and obviously I'm a yoga teacher, so this is what (laughs) that would come up, but yoga really helped me start to understand, (laughs) but not in the way that you would typically think, because when I first started really digging into my asana practice at home, I just started to notice the way that food felt in my body, the way that it it's as it's very different from just like I need this as fuel. It turned into okay, so how does this how does this sit with me? How is this supporting my practice? Exactly. When you're inverting and you want to lift your body up, you will feel that bowl of pasta that you ate. That's not can't eat bowls of pasta, but maybe not right before the class. So I got into this whole space where I feel like I am now, though. I, I would never say that I'm like, wow, I've got this all figured out. No, I am just like anyone else. But I am in this space now where I'm like, okay, what makes me feel good? What would I like to eat? It's intuitive eating, but it's also kind of like ratchet intuitive eating because <laughs> nobody taught me how to do it. <laughs> like, But it's very much like, huh, does this make me feel good? And that's a question that I was not asking before. So I do think that there's been a very positive evolution over time, but it's definitely something that is still still in progress. Yeah, as it is for so many people, right? I think intuitive eating, it's not like an end point where it's like, okay, I've got it all figured out because we're all changing all the time. And like with practices like yoga too, there are different things that you know, could be supportive or not feel so good when doing it. Cause I have the same thing. Like I can't eat a big meal too close to yoga or I will feel it in my stomach. Like I'll get reflux from it. You know, it's not comfortable. So kind of figuring out how to space your meals and how to eat in ways that support the practice, I think is is super helpful. And it's funny because your body will just start. I feel like, and maybe I'm I might just be projecting what my, how I feel like my body does, but it tells me what I need to be doing. And it, it lets me know, like, for example, if I eat something, I'm no good with dairy. I don't know lactose intolerant, I suspect, but I know that it's just not, it does not work for me. So, but I love cheese, right? So there are days when I'm like, Oh, this, okay. So the exact example that I'm thinking of when I was at home last week, they had halloumi cheese at Trader Joe's. And I was like, oh, I love halloumi. I'm going to get it. And I'll just like space it out over time. It's, it's no big deal just when I want it. And so I ate a piece of the halloumi. And then I went, this was like an hour later, I went to practice yoga. And I was so congested immediately. My body was <laughs> rejecting it. And I ended up like caught. I get very, this is one of the signs of it for me. I don't know if this is TMI, actually. No, no. It's <laughs> my dietitian. We talk about this stuff all the time. So 
I had just all the splim that came up and all mm. this. And I didn't have, I keep a box of tissues in my yoga space, but I, it wasn't near me. Mm-hmm. And I ended up just spitting it on the floor. It was the most <laughs> yoga thing to happen. <laughs> it was like, not because I'm judging myself for eating the food. Cause this is the difference. It's like, there was this time where I would be so judgmental of, and I still find myself slipping into that at times. I have to be extremely conscious of it, but like, slipping into this place of judgment where I just start saying all these awful things about myself. Like, how could you even think like with the halloumi cheese, it's like, you know, you shouldn't eat that. That's not good for you. You can't, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. That kind of talk is really just, it's not good for me, but that's very different from like, no, I want to eat this piece of cheese. And then my body was like, that you tried it. That's <laughs> not a thing. What's not? Right, right. And listening to those messages from your body in a non-judgmental way. And also just acknowledging like, well, it's my choice. Like if I want to eat this again, because it just seems so good, I sort of understand what it might do to me and, you know, the reaction my body might have, but it's still my choice. I feel like that's a so much more of an empowering stance than like, I have to follow this diet. I have to cut out these foods. It's, you know, where it's like outside yourself and you're, you're sort of reporting to some authority that isn't you. Totally. And it's so funny because in yoga, this one of the yamas in the eight limb path is ahimsa. And ahimsa is translated as nonviolence. And many people translate that as to mean that you are being nonviolent against all creatures, meaning that you would have to be vegan. And so there are there are whole lineages of yoga that are like vegan. You do not don't even bring that into the space. Don't bring anything with any connection to another living being into the space. And that kind of, I am totally understanding of where that ideology comes from. And regardless of whether or not I agree with it, I see, or whether I agree that it's right for me, how that translates within the yoga community in the West can be really toxic, bad, body negative language. It turns into this thing of like, people literally looking at your plate and being like, are you going to eat that? <laughs> like, where's, where was your food sourced? What is your, like, and then it turns into a class thing on top of that, where it's like, you have to have a certain, um, not even necessarily means, but a certain amount of education about the topic in order to even know what quote you should be eating. And this is within the yoga community. It's very common in America in particular. And I feel like, it's very unfortunate also because that, in my opinion, has nothing to do with yoga, but it is, I mean, I feel like the food dialogue, it goes all over the place. No, that's so interesting. And I'm glad you brought that up because my experience with yoga too was like, I found yoga as I was recovering from an eating disorder and it was so helpful in so many ways. But one thing that was really problematic for me was that I had a couple of teachers who subscribed to that definition of ahimsa and would, you know, bring sort of lectures about veganism into the classes. And so here I am grappling with improving my relationship with food, trying to make peace with all foods. And then I'm like, oh, crap, now do I have to be vegan? Like, what does this mean? You know, and it just it really took me out of this practice that otherwise was helping reconnect me with my body in a way that wasn't instrumental and, you know, focused on looks and all of that. It was like so healing for that. And then this dialogue about food came in and really sort of destabilized it. That is so unfortunate. It's sad, but it's also like a tale as old as time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
especially because yoga is so amazing if you were dealing with any kind of trauma, especially a body trauma like that, where you're trying to literally try to figure out how to love yourself like this, trying to come all the way back from that. Because the whole practice is about just looking within yourself to see the truth, to see the light and to see and to remember that you are always whole. Everything is great. Everything is perfect. But that is totally conflicted whenever you like you're in that space. That's why I always imagine someone who has been through like sexual assault trauma or rape or anything like that. And then they go into a yoga class where the teacher is just touching them. Yes. And you are here to be healed. You're here to heal yourself. And it's this, and it's not even intentionally destructive. Like I'm sure that the teacher in no one, <laughs> no one realizing what they're doing is like, oh my God, I would never have on that route. And I'm sure the same could be said for these lectures about Ahimsa too, because you bit the reality being that you never know who you're speaking to and you never know. There's no way to know what has happened to the person that you're speaking to. There's, right. there's no way to know. And particularly when it comes with, comes to eating disorders, because they are so common and so many people don't even talk about They Don't, I mean, especially with women, it's like, it's, in a way that they really should not be. And it's because of conversations about food all the time and making these spaces that are unsafe and that people feel like they can't even actually talk about it. But that's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, diet culture, right? It's like this this toxic media saturation that we all live in and advertising and just the messages we're constantly bombarded with that bodies are supposed to look a certain way and fit a certain standard of beauty. And if you deviate from that in any way, you're bad and you need to fix it. And of course, that rhetoric is used to sell products and it's great at that, right? It's like, that's why it exists. That's why the diet industry exists because you know it doesn't work. The products don't work. And yet the messaging really gets us where we live. It, it hits us emotionally so hard to be told like, you're not good enough until you look this way, that people keep buying it. It's so unfortunate. And I wish that there was a better way to like appreciate the, the megalomania and appreciate these. Like, because it's, it's, it's genius, truly, to trick you into thinking that everything about you is wrong. And so because everything about you is wrong, you have to buy our products so that you can be right. But you know inherently that the products do not work. You know this. Like there's no, there's no, and and they have to not work because if they work, then people wouldn't keep buying them. Right. And it's so it's the kind of like maniacal genius that is so sad because like I can't even, man, if we're just playing the game of life, that is clever. But it also so toxic and i'm just thinking about because it's because it reinforces the bad habit so that even if you know it's a bad habit you still think it's okay to have it because it's going to the same end result like i knew that these things are not what i should be doing but at the same time it's like yeah but i'm fat and ugly and i need to change the way that i look so it doesn't matter what it takes to get there all that matters is that it happens and it's just ugh, it's dark Right. It really, it's it's sort of negating your whole life's purpose and your worth and your value and just putting it all on your looks. It's like at any cost, by any means necessary, I'm going to get this done and like fuck the consequences, you know? And that there's no reason to do anything other than that. That if you, and if you're not doing that, then what are you doing? I get this all the time. 
yoga people are like, so are you going to try to lose weight or why aren't you trying to lose weight? So is that, is that my purpose in life to lose weight, to be small body for what? Like, what is the, I mean, I just wish that there was more completion of the idea. Like where, where do you go after you've lost all the weight? wearing the size that you always wanted when your face is shaped the way when you have this uh, those breasts what what happens then you still hate yourself that's what happens then so the most important thing is to try to figure out how to love yourself so that you can do all of the things that you want to do so that you can take that yoga class and hike that mountain and do all of these things that you should want to do because this life is brief and there's so many different things to experience and you should try to experience as much as possible, but not because you need to look a certain way for any other human being. I'm realizing that that is a very hard concept to, to grasp and to, it flies in direct contradiction of our society. Absolutely. And it is so telling that it's just pervasive because if it's coming up in yoga spaces and conversations like that, you know, it's like, Yoga is a place where people are ostensibly on this spiritual path and really working to be present in their lives and, you know, experience what life has to offer unmediated by this external stuff. And then, you know, it's still there. The diet culture is still there, right? It's it's everywhere. It is going strong, too. Like, mm -hmm. you know, not letting up the gas at all. And I feel like there's more responsibility for those who can kind of see where the problems lie. It's it's not even really, I'm, I'm less concerned with educating adults and more concerned with educating young people because like, I feel like there's so much, they're dealing with a kind of pressure that I can't, even growing up in the age that I grew up, I can't imagine what it's like to be a high schooler right now. You know, like the Jenners and the Kardashians and you've got like everybody cyberbullying you and you've got these ideas of beauty that are completely unattainable because they are literally, I mean, like we used to talk about photoshopping, but this is like, it's photoshopping 2.0. It's on mm -hmm. another level. You photoshop shop your actual body that is walking around. I don't know. <laughs> like you can't imagine living in this age of perfectionism. And I, I mean, especially for young girls and, and especially because I was that young girl, I feel like I just want to, that's who we try to change this conversation for. Yes. Yeah. I mean, going back to your own story, like what do you, th what did you experience in terms of body image then? And how did you come out of it? Well, when I was in what a lot of my issues, so I have a lot of issues with my fatness, but on top of that, I had a lot of issues with my blackness and there are so many little things about being a black woman that are very much demonized by our society. And things are a lot better now than they were when I was in middle school or elementary school. But back then, like in the nineties, everybody was like, it's like you saw black women but you saw Naomi Campbell with like a long, long weave. You saw 
Nia Long with like a short, like relaxed hair. Everybody has a perm. If you don't have a perm, then you have braids. If you don't have braids, you're wearing a wig. There's no acknowledgement of the natural hair that grows out of your scalp. And over time, there definitely were more people who came up. Lauren Hill, Erica Badu come to mind immediately. But it was a big gap between that and where we are currently where like there's tons of people with locks and lots of natural hair so i feel like i see people talk about that way more now but back then that was not happening and as a result i very much resented my natural hair and resented and the, the other thing is that being curvaceous in the black community is not seen as a bad thing and my mother and my aunts and my grandmothers they're all very curvy women and i always understood them to be oh, okay so that is beautiful you know but that's also one aspect of life like when you're going to school with everybody who's like you know watching sarah michelle geller and kirsten dunst and where it's like this is what beautiful is supposed to be it's hard to reconcile the what you're being told at home especially whenever the women who are at home it's not like they're without body issues they have their own problems i don't want to show my upper arms. I don't want to show my thighs, whatever, whatever. And all of those things just kind of seeped in to make me really resent the way that my body shows up naturally. And it's something that I still find myself dealing with to this day. It's part of why I wear my hair natural and why there's so many beautiful wigs and extensions. And there's amazing things that you can do with hair nowadays, but I can't even engage with it because I'm still in recovery from this deep-seated hate, self-hate, that is something, whenever you start to acknowledge it, it's frustrating to the point of embarrassment. And that is what I find myself just plodding through now. And I think that, you know, the fatness is tied up in that as well. But it was, I mean, it was a smooth two decades of just trying to look different than how I, how I was born. And that's unfortunately extremely common with with Black women, especially Black women in my age group. Mm -hmm. That's so painful. And you said in the book that you went to school with mostly white kids in a, a predominantly white suburb. Do you think that affected your relationship with your Blackness? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a lot of the environment is, is everything. And for me, like growing up in this environment where everyone kind of looks the same and everyone kind of acts the same, there's a tendency to want to assimilate and want to, you know, at least be accepted by other people. And I feel like that is something that I don't want to pretend to be like, oh yeah, and then I got over it. Now I just feel so great. No, it is a it's a day-by-day thing, trying to understand and trying to reconcile. And also because I think that when we do this kind of work, there's a tendency to want to point fingers and want to find the person to blame. And there's no way that I would ever blame my parents for raising me in a predominantly white community. Like, they, my parents, my father grew up without a toilet in his house. Like, to live in a community where there's, like, we have more than just a toilet in the house. Like you have access to good schools and all these things like that. That was their dream. This was, and that was something that I have benefited from in ways that I truly do not understand. And so it's not an issue of blame. I think it's just, where do we go from here? So yes, 
So you felt this way for multiple decades. And now where do you go from here? And I'm just, I'm in that stage of where do you go from here? Right. Learning to dance with it and navigate it, but it's going to come up. It's not, it's not healed. It's not gone. Exactly. Exactly. That it's still, it's very much just, it's there. And I, and I mean, I think it is, it's a recovery thing. You're just permanently in recovery. I'm comforted by the fact that this is such a shared experience. There are so I've heard, particularly in response to that part of my book where I, uh, the chapter called the Oreo, I've had so many black women reach out to me and say how I am telling their story. And that to me was a huge, one of the most important parts of writing this book was to tell a story that has not already been told and to present an experience that many other people are longing to see in print. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, it's so important and so powerful to be able to kind of be in process with that and share your journey to show other people they're not alone. Because yeah, I'm sure millions, you know, thousands or whatever of people are going through that same thing and feeling like they're the only one. And so what practices or, I mean, yoga, it sounds like has been a huge turning point for you with regard to body image in general, but what specifically like about yoga has helped with that? And then also what has helped in the recovery from internalized racism? Yeah. I mean, I think the main thing that has helped me in terms of resolving my body issues is really trying to understand the reason that I dislike the parts of myself that I've been taught to dislike. And that conversation has been best facilitated by photography and something that I would never have initially done because as a fat body person, I was really taught to avoid cameras, avoid cameras. If you can, if you are in front of a camera, you turn at very specific angles, you know, you like, you cover your belly, you cover whatever body part is that you don't like, but in general, just avoid cameras. And when I first started taking photos to put on Instagram, because this was back before now, Instagram is like full of people, brands, all kinds of people and specifically yoga people who are just doing the most in my opinion. But back then it was just very serious practitioners and teachers who were taking pictures of their practices so that they could track alignment and give one another feedback. So I was practicing yoga at home. I wanted to feel like I was a part of a bigger community and I wanted to get feedback and I wanted to, you know, talk alignment and have that kind of community. But when I first started taking the pictures, I was very nervous about doing it. And so I would only take them from like very specific angles. It would be like, okay, I got to have the camera down on the ground and then tilt it up a little bit. And then I can turn like quarter clockwise and I'm going to do like one to five. There's like a few poses that I'm comfortable doing in front of the camera because I know that I can do them. Cause then there's this whole psychological issue of, am I good enough to do this and put it on the internet? But so I did that for a few photos and I was like, and those pictures are still on Instagram. I don't delete anything. And so I uh, did that for a little while. And I was like, this is stupid. Cause I can't even see my body. I can't see anything. So I guess I'm going to have to take them head on. So I changed the composition. And then when I would be in the asana, 
in the moment that the photo is being taken, I would be like, oh my gosh, yoga is amazing. I feel so great, so strong, so powerful. Everything is wonderful. And then I would look at the picture and I would immediately start talking shit about myself. And I would be like, oh my God, you're so fat. Look at your belly. Look at your arms. You just can't do it. Ugh, that's so gross. Blah, blah. And so this went on for quite some time. And after a while, I started to say like, why are you talking shit about yourself? Like you are doing this to yourself. There is no one else here looking at this photo. And what's worse is that in the moment that you were taking the photo, you felt awesome. So why is it that you don't feel that way right now? And that dialogue, that is my like primary self-care ritual to put myself in situations where I have to evaluate where I'm standing in that way. Because a lot of times you just kind of cover things up and you pretend like it's like, Oh, I don't like the way that that looks. So I'm going to change my angle. I'll tilt my chin up. I'll do, you know, do all these different, make it more acceptable. But when you look at a photo that's frozen in time and it's something that you can't walk away from the memory of what happened. And you can't walk away from the still image. And I, cause I think, I do think it has to be the photo. I think that when you look in the mirror, you can change the way that you're standing. It's very malleable, very subjective. But when you take the photo you're forced to confront the things that you've been taught to dislike. And when you confront them, and this is really ultimately a yogic principle. It's like you, you confront the thing, you look at it, and then it becomes less of an issue. And then you can start to foster that love and compassion. But you can't do that if you don't actually look at it. And I don't think that you have to be practicing yoga in the photos. I think that that was a coincidental thing for me because I've seen so many people do this this exact same kind of meditation without practicing a yoga pose. But I think it can be helpful. I mean, especially if you do it when you're nude or semi nude and you really have to look at the, look at the thighs, the calves, the belly, the upper arm, the chin, whatever it is that is so difficult for you to come to terms with, because really the reason that at least I can only speak for myself, but the reason that that body hate manifests is because I think I don't look the way that uh, the way that I think people should look. And this is coming from a need to fit in. It's coming from that need to assimilate, like wanting to look like everyone else. But the reality is that human beings are not supposed to be identical. We're not supposed to look all the same. We're supposed to different and everyone is supposed to have their own unique qualities. And I think that coming to terms with that is not an easy process. I don't want to make any of this sound like, yeah, it's just so easy. Just take a few pictures, <laughs> save them here, put them on Instagram. And also this isn't saying like, go make an Instagram account and right. put stuff on it. Because the whole thing of putting it the stuff on the internet, that's a whole separate animal. That's a, oh yes. But just to have a log and to look at yourself and you can even delete the photo afterwards. But I don't even know if I'd really recommend deleting the photo after. I think that there's some to really seeing yourself so that you can love yourself because you are perfect exactly as you are. But it's so hard to remember that. And this, I mean, this same kind of processing is definitely what I use to sort of come to terms with internalized racism. And that's something that, I mean, it seems like the lines are so dark, but really everything is very gray. Like I just... I feel like I'm just finding my way through that process, trying to ID 
the damage when I can, trying to be compassionate at all times and trying not to be judgmental of myself in the process. Because what comes up whenever you're noticing all of these little quirks is that they are so toxic and nauseating at times. And and it's the kind of thing that you have to be able to look at with compassion so that you can release it with love. But it is a dark process for sure. Yeah. And I think that's that having compassion is so important when you're looking at these difficult things. Cause I think our impulse as humans is like to see something that seems wrong or, you know, bad or whatever. We judge it, right? We immediately judge it as wrong or bad and then think, okay, how can I fix it? Or how can I punish myself for having this wrong or bad thought or experience or whatever? And there's some Buddhist teaching that calls it the second arrow. You know, it's like you're you're shot with an arrow and you get hurt. And the sort of natural instinct, if you were shot with just one arrow, would be to focus on it and pull it out and tend to your wound. But instead, we do this thing of judging ourselves for having had some kind of painful experience and we pile on more judgment. It's like shooting ourselves with another arrow because we were shot with the first one, which makes absolutely no sense. But it's this human condition that we we fall into that trap, right? And so kind of that self-compassion practice is about recognizing and accepting what happened, accepting your pain, accepting your experience, and then not adding on to it by being like, oh, you're so terrible for having had that experience, or what are you doing with this thought, or you should be past that by now, or whatever kind of ways that we judge ourselves. Exactly. (laughs) It's so funny because we get into this space of like, and I am so guilty of this. Like it's, it's one of the main reasons that I practice that I'll get into the space of, it's a spiral. Like, oh my gosh, you're just like beating yourself down and you're doing it to yourself. What else is a part of it? And there's no worse person to have against yourself than yourself. And I, I mean, that's why, that's why I'm not really bothered by internet bullies and stuff because I can be my own worst bully. There is no thing that somebody else could say to me that I have not said and worse to myself and being able to walk away from that and being able to not throw that second arrow or um, shoot the second arrow or give the extra punch. That feels like when I, when I have moments like that, which I don't want to act like they happen yeah, all the time, every day. I mean, it's like it happens when it happens, but when it does, it's like I won the golden ticket in Charlie and Chocolate Factory. <laughs> yes. I bested it today mm-hmm. for tomorrow. Right. And it's, it's so powerful to hear you say that too, because as a yoga teacher, right, it's like you're in this position of, I'm sure people look to you like, oh, she's got it all figured out. And, you know, it's like, we're all, we're all just in process. We're all doing a practice. That's why it's called a practice. Exactly. And what's so funny about that is that I just, I'm so grateful that I've had teachers who are so honest about their own journeys and are very compassionate toward themselves and are really like just trying to show that they're working through this in the same way that everyone else is working through it because that is the way that I've always shown up as a teacher I've never it's not a part of my logic to try to be anyone other than exactly who I am and I think that whenever people project this like flawless yoga teacher that is not real. That's just something that it's probably fun clothes to put on, you know, it's fun dress up. It has nothing to do with reality. And I just, 
just feel like you can't work. <laughs> like I can't, I can't get too caught up in what someone else thinks that I'm going to do or what it, someone else thinks that I'm going to be because I'm going to be what I'm going to be. And it might be contradictory and it might be offensive and it might be something that someone else does not like, but it should still be true and it should still be authentic. And I think that there are a lot of teachers who I've had so many people say to me like, oh yeah, I always thought that I couldn't be a yoga teacher because of X, Y, Z reason, but I see you and now I see that I'm just fine the way that I am. And I'm just thinking, why did you think that you weren't okay before? Like, why did you think that you're, the point is that you're a real person. Cause that's why, that's why people become obsessed with the practice ultimately. And whenever you find a teacher who really speaks to you, the reason that they're speaking to you, well, not in all cases, but in some cases, I think it's because they're being really authentic and genuine and real. And at least it seems that way to you because that's, that's what's attracting us is that like you see a human being who you can actually communicate with and that you can actually, that you feel hears you. And that, because all of us are just trying to be heard, just trying to feel loved, trying to feel like we matter. I think that whenever teachers are just honest about who they are, it's inspirational to new students, especially. Absolutely. Yeah, I think being able to sort of feel a sense of belonging with a teacher in a community is so important. And that's because that's what we're all seeking, right? It's like, I think it was Brene Brown who made the distinction between fitting in and belonging, or it's like fitting in is sort of trying to force yourself into a mold and, you know, being someone you're not to try to please others. And belonging is being your most authentic version of yourself and being accepted for that and held in community and finding your people, you know? And I think that's what as a, an open, authentic yoga teacher, that's totally what you give people. And that's what, you know, other teachers who are able to have that kind of authenticity and humanness really bring to the table because, yeah, that's, that's what we all want is to be able to be that open and vulnerable and you're modeling how it's done. And that it's not pretty. You know, that it's <laughs> not, I mean, I get so much negative clapback. I get people who are I don't like that thing that you said. I don't like the way that your body looks there. You offended me. You. I remember I said something about the election around the time it happened, and I lost like thousands of followers that day because there's so many people who feel as though whenever they have a yoga teacher or whenever they think of a yoga teacher, they're thinking of peace, love, and rainbows and perfect harmony and happiness. And the fact that I don't model that is offensive to a lot of people. And I think that's very telling about the way that yoga is portrayed in our society. And I also think it's really telling about the way that people process complete strangers and project emotions onto strangers. And it's just, a very, to me, it's a very interesting social experiment. Oh, yeah. I totally feel you on that. I feel like that that projection onto strangers is something that I've experienced as well, where people will feel like they have a certain idea of who I am. And same here, I I like made an endorsement for the election. I then had a really like raw episode right afterwards about processing what had happened and the 
pain that I was feeling about it. And people, you know, some people were furious. Of course, a <laughs> lot of people were like, you know, this is great. I'm going to like buy your course now because I want to support you because you were vulnerable and said that, you know, so it's like there's both. There's definitely people who that ignites them even more and people who are like, you're not who I thought you were. You spoke ill of our president, you know, and I'm like, what? How? Am I not allowed to have opinions? Right, right. And I mean, my feeling too is like, you know, I've been talking about this health at every size, size acceptance stuff, but also like in the context of feminism and anti-racism and, you know, all these large, like social justice, right? It's like, to me, it's part of a social justice conversation and we can't shy away from those other aspects of social justice too. But it's like, yeah, I think people can sort of have their own experience with ideas or, you know, a person on the internet or whatever. And it's, and then if you do anything to sort of dispel that myth, it's like, all hell breaks loose, you know. I love all of that. <laughs> I identify 125. <laughs> percent I can't. We'll, we'll be on this all day, but oh, I yeah. is what I would like to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a tricky thing to navigate. But I mean, I'm curious too when you're saying about being a different kind of yoga teacher, and you have this great chapter in your book about like the history of yoga in the West, and sort of I think that gives some great context to like what it is that you're doing differently than a lot of teachers are doing right now and kind of the state of modern yoga as this very almost like I think it it replicates diet culture in a lot of ways. 100%. I'm not trying to be different. And I think that that is something that is difficult for some people to kind of wrap their heads all the way around. But like, I'm, I'm not doing, I'm not like, yeah, how can I provoke the way that yoga is seen in our society? I'm literally just like, I'm just practicing my yoga the way that I've come to understand it. If you feel the same way, you feel the same way. If you want to come to class, come to class. If you don't, don't. If you don't know anything about yoga, here's a book that can give you the explanation about it. Like, I'm not trying to do anything that is different. And the fact that it is so unintentionally different, I think says a lot. And I feel like for me, I'm not really that concerned with the whole modern yoga, the way that it's really turned into, I call it the yoga industrial complex, where it's this monster that eats leggings and coconut <laughs> water mats and all like, yes. like that. I'm not really that concerned with the yoga industrial complex because in my mind, it's a fad. And it's like, you know, Taibo or Jane Fonda or Richard Simmons or like all these things that they're really popular for a while and then people move on from them. And I think that yoga, real yoga, people haven't moved on from that for thousands of years. But that's not the yoga industrial complex. And the yoga industrial complex is rooted in diet culture because that is, again, like we talked about before, that's how you get people to buy stuff. Because nobody would buy stuff if they didn't think that they needed to change something about themselves. And it's so clever to do it in a way where like, you make people feel as though they're really just not good enough at all. And it's funny because there are many aspects of the yoga industrial complex that I quite like. I love my life form yoga mat that costs a bit of money, but that gives excellent traction. I love my high-waisted leggings that give me great support, but are also very expensive. Like I'm not going to sit up here and act like I'm not 
part of all of this. But I also think that my practice would still exist without the mat leggings. It's not built upon those things. And I think that when you get into a space where it's like people are, especially when you work social media into it, because as yoga moves forward, it's really honestly kind of sad, but it social media has come to take up so much of how people are finding out about the practice. As a result, it makes it where it becomes this image obsession. So that like in the same way that people become obsessed with, I don't mean to drag the Kardashians, but they are coming up again. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) looking at in the same feed as your Chrissy Teigen or, or Khloe Kardashian or one of those Jenners in the same feed as of pictures of, of them, you're getting beach handstand. You're getting, look at my Ekapada Kundanyasana perfectly against the sun, a sunset. Like, so that people become obsessed with that. And it turns into, I just want to make that. I want my body to be willowy and long and strong and flexible and perfect, just like that person. And that moves so far away from what yoga actually is that I don't even know how to bring it back. So in my mind, like, I'm not really that concerned with all of that. Cause again, I just think it's a fad, the real practice of yoga, it will survive this fad and it doesn't care about the fad. Mm-hmm. That's really well said. I love, I love the way you frame that. Cause it is, I think that's the image that a lot of people get of yoga having no real access to it other than these images, right? Like it hasn't been mainstream like this maybe ever. I know that maybe in the eighties, there was a little bit of maybe Jane Fonda did some yoga or something. I remember my mom briefly being like, Ooh, yoga is a thing because of, I think Jane Fonda, but I mean, it hasn't been to this level. It seems like any time in history, but yeah, just like you said, there are these sort of workout crazes that hit and then people move on just like diets, you know, like we've gone through so many iterations of these different fad diets over the years, like the low fat craze of the eighties and nineties seems laughable, you know, but now it's on to these other things that are going to be equally laughable 10 or 20 years from now to most people. So the sort of like faddishness of it is one thing, but then there, there's that spiritual part of it that you talk about in the book as well. Right. And that, you know, it's not just a workout routine. Like you're not coming to it for exercise per se. It's, it's a whole practice unto itself, which I think is totally what's missing from those images where you're just seeing like a still photo of somebody doing a pose, no context as to what this pose is about or how it's integrated into a whole tradition. Absolutely. And that's something that I've actually had a lot of conflict with over the last couple of years. It's like, what is the purpose of all these photos? Like, did they really push the practice forward? Yes, there are people who are finding out about it who wouldn't find out about it otherwise, but is this the best way to do it? And I actually now do not put pictures of my personal practice on Instagram nearly as much as I used to. Sometimes I do it like if I if I have something specific to say about it, then I will, but I don't have pictures of my, I have, I still take pictures. Like I take all kinds of, I have so many photos and videos that are just not logged anywhere, but on my phone. And it's because I don't want to continue to perpetuate this idea that this is what the practice is, that it's obsession with asana and all of that. 
But I do do professional shoots. And when I do, and part of the reason that I've come to this conclusion is because of the experience of being on professional shoots. Because whenever you're not around people who also practice yoga, there is absolutely no respect for this practice. There's no respect for the asana. It's seen as basically like a circus sideshow act. So that people are like, and then especially because I am a fat black queer person, then they're like, Oh, great. Fat black queer person. Do that thing. It turns into like a mental show or something where it's like, look how, look at what you can do. Show us what you can do. Show your worth because of what you can do. And it's just like, yeah, um, I'm kind of good on that. I'm not, not going to go with that. And so now whenever I'm on professional shoots, I have a very strict set of poses that I will do. And it's not, I don't do anything that's like particularly advanced. I don't do things that I think are going to intimidate people from practicing or that are going to create that kind of like worshipful state because it's just, that is an egotistical yoga industrial space. That is not yoga. And I think that the only way to really stop people from falling down that web, because that's a whole new arm of diet culture, you know, it's a whole new for us to be concerned about. And the only way to stop it is by taking responsibility for your own actions. And I, I bear, I feel like I bear a certain amount of responsibility for all of that. And there's, there are many benefits too. I mean, like it's so many people who have told me that before seeing me, that they literally never seen a fat person practicing yoga. And that to me is like, okay, great. I'm glad we got to see that. There, I'm so not the first fat person to practice yoga and put pictures of themselves on the internet doing it and not even the first fat black person to be doing that but i'm just glad that you saw that this is something that you are capable of doing because there's so many people who are just like yeah before that i really thought that like it was only for slender white women and it's like cool so you don't think that that's the case now but ultimately like what is the purpose of the imagery what does it do who does it help it does it help? Yeah. I mean, that's such an important thing to navigate. I think it's it's really like, thank you for sharing that. And for it's powerful that you're thinking critically even about your own position within that. Because I think it is such a double-edged sword, right? It's like there's that that amazing benefit of having visibility and having people see themselves as capable of practicing yoga because you're there practicing yoga and maybe they are some, you know, they identify with you in some way and sort of blowing up the myth that yoga is only for thin white women, I think needs to happen all the time. But also, yeah, there's this sort of like the yoga industrial complex has really seized on imagery and that has become such an extension of it is like these sort of unattainable images, which that's what diet culture is about, right? It's like creating some sort of unattainable ideal in whatever realm it is, like whether that's just general looks or yoga practices or any other sort of athletic practice or like, here's how you have to be at work and here's how to look like you have it all together and, you know, whatever, parenting, like there's industrial complexes around all of that stuff, right? So kind of not, you know, refusing to sort of be the aspirational ideal is is a really powerful stance. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that I think is not really understood by most people, quite frankly. And I feel like the response that I get whenever I express these opinions at the time that they have to be expressed is usually just people being like, oh, 
she don't want to do that pose today. Oh, she, okay, I guess she's not, you know, like, there's there's very little, I mean, and this also brings into, I have theories about how this is really just based out of disrespect for Black women in general, and then whenever we give opinions that are not preferred, then it's always going to be held in a negative space, but that all being said, I just think that there's most people, I think most people just don't understand. They're like, well, whatever. Okay. So it doesn't, again, like I can't, I can't really control how other people feel about it. And there's, there's way too many positive benefits on the other side for me to think that like, even I'm seeing it from the right perspective all the time, but questioning it is the key. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That you're not ever locked into one way of being. You're sort of constantly navigating and dialoguing about this stuff. Oh my gosh. Well, it's such a pleasure talking with you. I could talk to you all day, but I want to be mindful of your time because I know you're super busy. So tell us about the book and where people can find it and find you. Yes. So the book is Everybody Yoga, Let Go of Fear, Get on the Mat, Love Your Body. It's basically like my 101 to yoga. It gives all the information that I think a non-practitioner should have. And it tells the story of my own practice and how I came to start practicing yoga through childhood problems and death and alcohol abuse. And it just creates a a new image of what a modern practitioner actually looks like. And you can get it by going to my website, which is jessamanstanley.com. And that's where you can also find my class schedule. You can find my online classes. You can get all kinds of information. And I'm also on Instagram and all the social media things at my name is Jessamine, although on Twitter, I am Jess, not Jazz. Love it. I will put links to all those in the show notes too, so people can find you. And I have to say, I love your classes. They're some of my favorites. I do a lot of online yoga practice, and it's such a delight to take a class from you. Oh, well, I'm glad. I also am a big fan of online classes, well, obviously, but I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And I hope that we are able to practice together in person someday. Me too. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body, and a whole lot more. Sign up at christyharrison.com slash email. You can also subscribe via iTunes and leave us a nice rating and review, which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages. Just go to iTunes from your computer or your podcast app, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on ratings and reviews, and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. And that's really cool because we're competing against some of the weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices, and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the 
rankings to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Bullies want your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend's house,